welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have this opportunity to have you listen to the show. We work in a creative industry, and many hairdressers have a real love and appreciation, not just for hair and fashion, but also for art and design and architecture. Good salon design needs to serve multiple purposes. It needs to express a brand's beauty aesthetic, personality, and brand values. But at the same time, it must also be functional, comfortable, considerate of the environmental impact, be legally compliant, and appeal to the salon's target market, amongst many other things. The best design doesn't exist in isolation of the people that visit and work within it. But instead, good design creates a space where the people in it feel that they belong. My guest on today's podcast is London-based architect Jonathan Lovett. Amongst other things, Jonathan is the creative design force behind some of the most beautiful salon and school designs over the last 40 years in the hairdressing space, both in the UK, Europe, Asia, and the United States. He's also a former judge of the Naha Awards for Salon Design and is founder and owner of London Architectural and Design Business Association of Ideas. In today's podcast, we'll discuss salon design trends, what the lasting impact might be of COVID on salon design, how changing business models impact salon design, and the need to incorporate sustainability into salon design. And lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Jonathan Lovett. Hi there, Anthony. Great to see you. Good to be here. It's fantastic to have you on, Jonathan. I'm, I've, I've never had anyone else that I've spoken to on the podcast about salon design. So uh, I know you're going to be a, a real you know, wealth of knowledge for our audience. Um, I, I want to sort of you know, introduce this by saying that you, know, you, you have been a creative design force behind some beautiful salon and school designs really over the last 40 years in the UK, Europe, Asia, and the United States. So I want to start by talking about your approach to design. And years ago, I read this quote. I believe it was from a Japanese fashion designer. I think it was Yoji Yamamoto. And he said, the art of the minimum requires the maximum discipline. And when I think about some of the work that you do in salon design and architecture, that quote has a real relevance to what you do. So how would you describe your general design aesthetic when it comes to salon design? Well, I, I, I think that quote is really interesting because it's true that in order to make things minimal, you have to work so damned hard uh, to, to produce that look. Um, it, it is quite complicated, and I wouldn't say that our approach is minimalist in that sense. I think we do we do put work and we do make the effort to produce something that is uh, complete, and and I know it's an overused word, but it's holistic in its in its basis. Um, 
I think our, our approach to design begins with people, really. It's, it's about, well, it, it sort of begins with place and people. That's, that's our starting point. Place in the sense that you can't, really, you can't design uh, in, in a vacuum. You, you need somewhere to, to fit that design. And you need people to give it personality. So that, that, that's our starting point, I guess, is to assess the place and assess the people. Okay, that that's really important, isn't it? Because I've seen lots of beautiful salons when there's no one in them, you know, or pictures of a beautiful salon. But then when you actually work in the space, it doesn't sort of work. So it, it's that's really what you're talking about. It's uncomfortable to work and it doesn't flow or whatever. So so what is it that comes first for you? Is it defining what the salon experiences for, for, for the clients and for the, the people who work in it, uh, and then working the design around that, or or does the design influence what the salon experience is going to be? It's I'm always really clear about that. My starting point is always with the plan, always. I mean, that's the basis of all architectural expression, I think, is figuring out the plan. Because if you figure out the plan, then you figure out the customer journey or the client journey. It's basically yeah. quite work on that topic so so when you say the plan do you mean the physical space yeah i mean i mean looking at looking at the floor from above you you know you're, you're yeah. close looking down on it and imagining here's the front door here's the back door and sometimes the constraints are really uh, very mundane they might be like the only place you can get drainage away from this is in this corner the only place you can get water supplies in this corner. Yeah. So maybe you, you have to kind of put together a checklist of things that are possible and things that are not possible. Yeah. There's nothing worse than a plan that's been figured out in fairyland, you know, where, where there's no basis in reality. And I, I think from our point of view, from my, my point of view, whenever I'm asked to look at a project, I always start by a space, putting down the space plan and having... Because apart from anything else, it gives you something to talk about. It gives you something that you can really relate to. It's it's fine thinking about wall coverings or floor coverings or whatever, but they're not. Those sort of decisions are a little bit down the road. They might be they might be part of the client's aesthetic. They might be part of the aesthetic of the place you're in. I mean, you may be in a different city, in a different environment. You might be in the middle of the desert in Arizona or whatever all of which will have an influence, but you have to have a plan. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I know that you have done, um, notably, you know, the Sassoon salons and schools around the world, um, as well as various academies for Schwarzkopf. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about was how does, is, it, is there a difference between, well, there is a difference, uh, between salons and schools? How do you approach educational spaces differently? Well, and in a kind of throwaway sense, it's a bit. The difference is a little bit like turning right or left on the aircraft. You know, it's it's uh, when you're designing a salon, you're almost certainly turning left. You may, you may not be saying necessarily investing the same amount of money as you would in a first-class cabin, but but you're definitely doing something that's customised as a one-off. Generally speaking, we we did some work for a Japanese company called Ash in Central London. Uh, a little while ago. They're very big in Japan. They wanted to open up in, in this country. 
Yeah. And we, we, we really made a retainer-made solution for them that was not expensive to do, but it was very individual. Whereas in the, in the school's environment or the training school's environment, you, you've got a much more standardized, robust interior. It can still be very elegant, very beautiful, but its its occupation is repetitive. Every day, you know, those eight seats or 12 seats are filled up in the same way. Models in the morning, models in the afternoon, training, training, training. It's a, it's not, it ceases to be about the customer experience and it becomes the hairdresser's experience. And there's a very, very big difference in that. On the one hand, you're bringing yeah. forward the importance of the hairdresser, and on the other hand, you're bringing forward the importance of the client. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, one of the things that is is sort of noticeable in in the length of my career, and you know we're we're a similar age, is is that I started hairdressing in 1978, and in the 70s there was this huge transition from the traditional barbershop for men and the beauty salon for women it, it, into what was sort of termed the unisex salon, and I I dislike the term unisex salon, but every now everyone knows what I mean by that. And the unisex business model was was totally prevalent until, you know, say 2010. And it was about then that the barbershop was sort of reborn and modernized. And in the last 10 years, there's been a huge shift back to the separate barbershop space for men and a decline in the amount of men visiting what was the, you know, unisex salon space. Now, what I want to ask you about is now that the barbershop space has become cool again in its own right, I can't help thinking that the traditional unisex salon owner is now waking up to the idea that the black and white and chrome aesthetic that so many salons emulated is in need of a more sort of female aesthetic. So we're starting to see more color and a softness to salon design that's more aimed at women without having to compromise on alienating men because they're now gravitating back to the barbershop space. So what, what are your thoughts about that? And and how do you react to that, you know, that sort of changing, you know, social needs as a designer? Well, I think it's really interesting that we're now in a situation where the men have retreated into a very kind of blokey environment, a very, very, very masculine environment. And it's true that that the unisex salon is becoming more the women's salon, the women's environment. But I mean, when I think back to the, not the first barbershop we did, but one of the first barbershops we did was for the Sassoon brand in Brook Street, which was very clearly a men's space. But it was still yeah. very, so you could still imagine a woman being there. Yeah. Whereas when I look at barbershops now, they don't look like they could, they, they're not at all friendly towards women. They're very, very masculine in their origin. Yeah. And they tend to be, certainly in the ones near us where we live, and I pass them by, in the pre-COVID days, there'd be a gang of guys hanging out outside them. You know, it becomes almost like a social space as well as a, a place to yeah. get to it. And I think it was the barbershops that first introduced the idea of having alcohol and hair, haircuts, combining the two, offering that. So it's like go to, almost like go to your local bar and get a haircut. And on the and the women's uh, side of things, it's I guess they are softer, but it's I think it's what strikes me more. It's a contrast between the two. That if you look at the 1950s, when men only went to barber shops, women only went to hairdressers, 
and now it's and now it's swinging back in that direction. But I think there's still a group of people around, like me, for example, who would go for. I would always follow a hairdresser rather than a, than a space. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a my loyalty is towards a person rather than the place. So whether they were working in a barber shop or a unisex salon, you go to the person, not the. No, it's a personal uh, relationship thing. Yeah, but as a personal uh, experience, me somebody gave me a wet shave as a present. Yeah, and I've never had that that done before with a razor. Yeah, I went to a, you... a barber shop, handy, and so I felt slightly intimidated by the whole process. Not to say intimidated by having a, a razor sharp instrument on, on your neck, but yeah, but it was a complete experience for me. Very dark, very woody, very very sort of. Uh, Mandy, you know, very sort of masculine environment. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah it's really, I, I think when I think of the contrast between the men's environment and the women's environment, where I have my hair cut now is a lady's, well, it's a hairdresser's, it's a salon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I felt very comfortable in that environment as well. I used to have my hair cut, obviously, at Sassoon's all the time. I felt very comfortable there. Yeah, okay. It, well, one of the other things that's happening, uh, and it, it's a big change in some countries more than others, but it's very much spreading, and that's the the rise of the independent contractor, whether you call it the gig economy or the business unit of one or booth rental or chair rental, you know, or in the US, uh, salon suites or salon studios. Yeah. Um, there's a shift away from big salons into a business model that's smaller. And we'll talk more about COVID later, but but that shift was happening pre-COVID. So so from a designer's perspective, how does that impact on what you do? Are you seeing a lot more, you know, smaller spaces? No, no, I I don't have. I only have experience of these by looking at stuff on the internet. I mean, I'm following that trend. I think that it's. Uh, a very interesting thing, and, it, and to a certain extent, it gives you a. I mean, we used to put into some of the Sassoon salons, we would put in a VIP space. There's yeah. just no, some people deserve to have absolute privacy and to be hidden away from. I mean, Sassoon's in New York, used at the foot of the, what became the Trump Tower, used to have a special cabinet for storing the clients' fur coats while they were being worked on, which wow. is extraordinary. <laughs> A lockable compartment by these expensive coats would be stored. But this looking at the trend for the salon studio or salon suite, it does give you it, it does kind of mirror a little bit what's happening in the airlines, where they're putting in these sort of first class compartments for their truly wealthy customers who can be pampered individually. And there is a, there is part of that is to do with the hairdresser having a standalone environment where they can work and earn uh, reasonable pay. And part of it is to do with the client feeling that they're getting a special VIP individual treatment. Yeah. I think that what's what's clear about them is that they're looking at them, they're a little bit soulless. They're, they're, because there is there is the only individuality would be the person who's in that booth, who's the person who's doing the work. The actual architectural design is a little bit like a cookie cutter type 
thing where you know you're going to create one booth and you just reproduce it, bang, 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 and then maybe put a little kitchen at the end and a toilet, and that's the end of that. Yeah, I know some of them are uh, a lot, depends on, you know, whose franchise it is for the salon studios, etc. cetera. Uh, some of them, in fact, I think probably most of them, you know, stylists are allowed to, you know, personalize them in terms of the decor, but but the structural component of it, you know, the shampoo base and, you know, the electrics, et cetera, you know, that they are what they are, so to speak. With, with, with the COVID thing, um, particularly, again, in the US, because the studio model is, is so prevalent there now, is clients perceive that they'd rather be in a smaller space uh, because it's safer from you know the covid perspective uh, you know whether it's a a salon studio or just a smaller salon how how do you think the covid um you know impact will be or what do you think the covid impact will be on salon design long term you know things like spacing between chairs and you know partitions and you know all that sort of stuff i think that's a really really interesting such a topical issue such an interesting question. I mean, when, when the COVID thing blew up here, we did a lot of work for um, uh, Schwarzkopf on how that would impact on the, the design of academies and how that, how that could be sort of retrofitted into the academies that are being used now to do with spacing and hygiene and all that sort of thing. I'm not sure the answer to that. There may be, I think that it's going to fall out. I've noticed that people's reaction to COVID Various so wide, widely between those that can't sleep at night because they're so fearful of it and those that not accept it but live with it in a different way. From a personal perspective, I'm looking forward to just getting back to normal. I don't really yeah. want widely spaced. I don't want plastic screens between me and my neighbours. And I've got this sort of feeling that, that when it does bottom out, when it does become a safer environment, uh, I think people would want to be back where they feel familiar. I, I, my my incident is for that. And I think salon owners would want people to be quite close together again because obviously there's a big impact on the economy of a salon if you change the seat spacing from one yeah. point or from four feet to eight feet. Mm. It makes a huge difference to your ability to earn, earn money. It reminds me of the... Um, a little bit of, of the AIDS crisis, mm. and how that, where we did a lot of, lot of work with Sassoons on how we make salons hygienic and clean and, and what's more visibly clean. There's been a lot of chat about it's one thing to say you're clean, but it's another thing to be, you know, appear to be clean. And in design terms, that, that could be any amount of tiny details about how you can clean the space and how easy it is to keep it clean and the materials that you use in it. And I think the fallout from COVID is going to be wide and varied. I don't think there will be, from my own point of view, I don't think there will be a, a, a trend that reflects the horrors of COVID going forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I had an interesting experience. It was probably probably 10 or 20 years ago now, I can't remember. Uh, but I got taken into a department store that was uh, old and it's now been demolished. 
but on the top floor of this department store, there was a salon that looked like a museum piece. It had still been a, a functioning salon up until you know this point in time. And it was obviously designed in the 50s uh, or, or maybe 60s. And, and I absolutely loved it because it was all these little cubicles. And, you know, you've got to remember that the 50s and the 60s, the best salons in the world were predominantly in department stores at that point in time. And, you know, of course, when I was looking at this, it was it was just ancient. There was there was no way you'd look at it and go, it was cool. I looked at it and thought, wow, that's interesting. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it before. But when you look at it now with fresh eyes, you know, with COVID eyes on, so to speak, you look at it and go, actually, here is a big salon because it was a big space but it was still divided up into cubicles. And I, I must admit, over the last 12 months, I've sort of reflected on that idea because it wasn't a, a series of salon studios, but it was a big salon that was very, you know, purposefully uh, divided up into cubicles. And they were all these little, you know, mahogany booths. It was actually, you know, really quite beautiful and such a shame that the whole thing, you know, got demolished. Do you I suppose what I wanted to ask you about is, is do you look back at things like that and in your mind's eye sort of modernize them in terms of the materials? And the, I mean, like I say, this was dark mahogany booths with chandeliers. Do you look at that sort of thing and think, do you know what, if you were to bring that, you know, into the 21st century and use these sort of colors and these, you know, building materials, et cetera, it would look very modern. Is, is that, am I, am I going off in the wrong direction here completely? Or, or does that sort of, you know, ring a, have a resonance about it? A slight digression. If you, if you remember in the 30s, 40s, 50s in London, for example, public houses on pubs were really, really big. But more often than not, they were subdivided into much smaller rooms that were kind of yeah. all served by the same bar, but that you would have a snug, a saloon bar, and a ladies' bar, and a public bar. And the, do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There was a sense of subdivision in society. And I can imagine a hair salon being similar in a way, where you, where you create a number of smaller spaces that may have had different, they may have had different values to the people who use them, for example. But, uh, you know, they may have had different qualities. Yeah. Whether, whether that is translatable into the 21st century, who can tell? I mean, who would, who would run a place like that in, in that kind of configuration? Yeah, it's what, interesting. I mean, I, I, what we have that wanted to do that sort of thing. Because I think, apart from anything, one of the things that's, kind of, that's really true about hairdressers is that they... I mean, a lot of hairdressers, including Cecil himself, who say, oh, I wanted to be an architect. You know, they, yes. they wanted to be a designer. And, uh, and I, I can appreciate that. A lot of uh, salon owners are very creative people. There's no question about it. They have very strong and good ideas about what they're doing. Some of them, some of them are quite eccentric. You know, you, you, that's obvious. When I look at the judging of the Naha competition, and you see these huge uh, American uh, salons that are basically built in sheds, industrial sheds, but they have stamped upon them the identity of the client to such a degree that they are transformed. I mean, they don't look yeah. like the industrial spaces they really are. They, they, they are heavy with wood, they're light with white colours, they're whatever, whatever. There are so many different variations in it. 
Okay. And another change that I wanted to talk to you about, which again impacts on the design side of it, is the retail component. Because you know, retail in terms of the salon business model is changing. And again, through COVID, it, I, I would suggest it's being, you know, stretched even more because, you know, there's a shift towards online retail, whether it's through Amazon or other specialty online retail outlets and, you know, affiliate programs, et cetera, you know, for people to buy online. And that's, you know, impacting on the salon, you know, retail model significantly. So, you know, I always think that from a salon owner's point of view, from a hairdresser's point of view, that retail is a very important component of not just sales revenue, but also client service and merchandising. So what I wanted to ask you about was, how do you think as a designer about retail spaces in salons from a design perspective? And, and you know, do you see that changing? Well, it's, I suppose it's like the, it's the same old story when you leave the, the, Funfair or the museum, you go, you leave via the shop. And that's traditionally the way you get out of the salon, yeah. you via the shop. It, it reminds me that when, you know, when Sassoon, before Sassoons were bought by Regis, right, retail was of no importance to them at all, really. It, mm-hmm. it, their, their revenue came from their, their hair and their product range was very, very narrow. That may have been dictated by commercial reasons, who knows? But the first thing Regis did, when they bought the, the, the salons, was put in retail at the front of the store, rather, rather by, by the paper one. Yeah. And lots of it, and not, not so soon products, every kind of product. And it, I'm sure it made a huge difference to their, to their financial profile doing that. And we've done, funnily enough, we've done a lot of work on retail spaces for Schwarzkopf. Well, not retail in the sense, but professional products being sold as if they were retail products. And that level of merchandising is is a very sophisticated and challenging thing. It's very difficult to present products. It's very difficult to make them look special and at the same time have them into enough quantity that you don't have to keep restocking all the time. It's a, it's a, it's a really tricky field, but uh, I would say it's very important for uh, hairdressers to to have a retail offer, very, very important. I mean, after all, if you're sitting with your hairdresser, they're the person you trust with your hair implicitly, and they're the person whose recommendation you would trust implicitly. I, I bought products because they were recommended by my hairdresser, no question about it. I mm. believe when they, tell you, when they tell you you look good with that product in your hair, well, yeah, that, that argument is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. From a from a if you're a salon owner listening to this, you know, from a designer's perspective, do you look at at, at merchandising at retail outlets and salons and think to yourself, if only they did this, it would make it so much better. Like like like, what would what what advice would you give to salon owners from a design perspective about their retail merchandising units? Yeah, I think I think that I would kind of turn that and I'd say if only they didn't do this, which is if okay. only they use the supplier's standard retail displays. Yeah. Which is universally awful. There are very, very few I've seen that aren't mm. awful. They're designed down to a budget all the time. And if they do have a video running after a month it doesn't work anymore, or even worse, 
you get like a L'Oreal display with Schwarzkopf products on it because the mm. owner is too mean to do it themselves. I mean, those those things to me, those those product displays that come from the manufacturers always seem naff to me. And they, yeah. They, yeah. And I think if the product is, is well lit and it's well presented and it's clean and it's easy to get to, it's accessible, you can pick it off the shelves and sniff it. And probably even priced. I think one of the things that I really do not enjoy about product displays is when you don't know how much they cost. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Because you feel, you know, if you have to ask how much it costs, then you probably can't afford it. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. <laughs> got that sort of prejudicial feel to it. I think retail displays need to be simple and effective and clean and clear, and they don't want to be over-branded by somebody else's identity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other thing I often see is, you know, high-end retail products in the hairdressing space, um, expensive retail products, but then they go and put them on some IKEA, no disrespect to IKEA, because IKEA do have some great design pieces, but, you know, it's it's on a rickety old IKEA bookshelf that, you know, really should have been thrown in a skip 10 years ago. And it's a complete mismatch of you're trying to charge $50 or 50 pounds or whatever it is, a significant amount of money for this product. And yet the merchandising and display of it completely is is at odds with that messaging of value for the product. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Completely agree. And whereas I say that most... An enormous number of hairdressers are quite uh, creative people. Some of them have uh, NAF ideas and they present products in a NAF way. And it doesn't do it justice and it doesn't encourage you to buy. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that, that must be having a huge impact on you as a designer is sustainability and the environment. I mean, it's having an impact on all of us, uh, obviously, and, and rightly so, it should do. Um, so talk to us about that because that is something that is ever changing for lots of different reasons you know but the whole world is you know you'd have to have been living under a rock to, to have not realized that we need to take care of the planet more and we need to be thinking about you know recycled you know vintage reusing stuff repurposing stuff we need to be thinking about wind turbines and solar panels and using ground heat and all these sort of things. So, you know, from a designer's perspective now, if you're given a, a, a salon, you know, brief, talk to us about how that sort of thing influences you. You know, ha, ha, is that all top of mind or, you know, a salon's receptive to it? Where, where do you um, come at that from? We've done a lot of work on, on sustainability. You know, the notion of renewable energy, uh, conservation of power, uh, you know, the minimizing of power consumption, as well as saving energy through insulation, the saving energy through reducing energy uh, use throughout the summer. And it is really, really difficult these days to come up with any kind of meaningful solutions. I don't think anybody's granted at all. If you look back at the Avedis, do you remember the Avedis salon on... Um, New Oxford Street in central London. Yes, yeah. All wood and plants and everything like that. And mm. the claim about the sustainable design. But really nothing, it's smoke and mirrors. There's, there's nothing there that substantially reduced the energy cost of that, that building. I mean, it, it had a completely glass facade, for one thing, which mm. was 
pretty low down in terms of its energy conservation. I think it's a really tough one. If you think of a standard um, strip mall or high street store or something like that, to actually incorporate into it any of the features that you're talking about, barring a few to do with uh, repurposing materials or, or, or recycling materials, you may, you may be able to do some water saving uh, things in there. You certainly now, there's no question that the heat from lighting and the energy consumption from lighting has become technically possible to reduce hugely. I mean, it's a fraction. If if I think back 20 years, a Sassoon salmon would have a massive lighting load that had to be cooled using an air conditioning system. That doesn't occur with LED lighting sources. The output is absolutely minimal, and and is it's not not only is the lighting highly effective, but it also lasts a long time as well. So from that point of view, we've hit the target. We we've, we've met the brief, but yeah, you can't get rid of air conditioning in salons because you're competing with almost three kilowatts of hairdryer every time it's being yeah. used. Mm. So there you are in a confined space, maybe. It's maybe in a strip mall in, in, in an American suburb. You're putting out maybe 9 or 12 kilowatts of heat on a hot summer's day. You have to cool it. And mm. probably the only way you can cool it successfully is by using a conventional air conditioning system at the moment. I think yeah. that the whole notion that wouldn't it be nice to see a shopping mall, you know, something big that was designed with sustainability in mind, that used ground source heat pumps to provide the heating and cooling that, that used uh, a central ventilation system that had built-in filtration and so on. People's views about what a sustainable salmon looks like is one with plants in it. That's, that's, mm. that's the answer to it. And you and I know that that means nothing. So is that just window dressing? You know, when you see, like I saw a beautiful salon design recently that had a, uh, a green breathing wall and it looked fantastic. And, and like you said, it sort of creates that, uh, that perception of, you know, being environmentally sound and et cetera, et cetera. And, and it, it looked nice aesthetically. Um, it was well done. Um, but are you saying that is just literally window dressing? It's not really doing anything to make that salon more, you know, environmentally friendly. No, I think I think that would be an unfair judgment on my part. I, it may be, that, say, the living wall that you're talking about, the planted wall. Mm. I'm pretty sure that the Aveda salon had a small living wall uh, twenty years ago. It may be a very very good gesture from the salon owner who believes in that kind of thing, they may buy their electricity from renewable sources, even though they don't have a turbine on the roof producing it. They may do lots of things to recycle and, re and, re and repurpose and make those little incremental changes, but they are only little incremental changes. They're not substantial. If somebody can come up with a hairdryer, for example, that uses very little electricity and doesn't make a noise, Mm. Fantastic! It would be a fantastic achievement, and it would be a major contribution towards a sustainable salon. Yeah, no, yeah. I think, I think there are owners about, and there are companies about, certainly like Transco, for example, who are really, really interested, who have at their heart of their their business the need to be sustainable. It's something that we work on all the time in our practice. Yeah, we're 
we're working on sustainable housing and, and zero carbon stuff like that. But in the salmon world, it's really tough to implement. It's really tough. And okay. if you think of all the different environments, I mean, we've worked in, in, in projects in, in Malaysia and in the, in the Far East. Where, where it's incredibly humid and hot and sticky and so on, you've got to control the environment. You've got to. Um, you could do it if you, live, if you were working in a building that had been specifically designed for that purpose. But if you're in a mall of any kind, you can't do it. You, you, have, to, you have to accept that you can only do what – you can only implement what's available. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting – I look at a lot of your design and it's very cool and it's very aesthetically pleasing and it's, you know, it's, it's sexy, it's beautiful. But really what you're saying is that a lot of design is not sexy at all. A lot of it is, there's a lot of legislation and a lot of mundane stuff that you have to take into consideration, isn't there? It's not just about the, the visual look and appeal of something. It is all the things that have gone on underneath to make it not just compliant, but, but to make it work. You're absolutely spot on there. I think that in our profession, there's like 10% sex and 90% hard work, just getting <laughs> Yeah, okay. What, what, what are the trends that, that you're seeing in, in design now from a, from a salon perspective? I know we touched on that at the beginning, but is there, if, if you were sort of looking at, you know, because it's not like a, a switch gets flicked and it's all changed now. It's a gradual evolving process. So, so what would you say trends are at the moment in salon design? Well, I think looking around and based on the work that we've been doing in this area, there seems to be, there is a trend towards that sort of pseudo-industrial work. Yeah. I think that's that could be on the on on the decline now. It could be, but you never know. You never know. I think the worst examples of those are when chains get hold of those ideas and distill them down into a few components, a few things that create the, you know, like a brick wall, like a raw brick wall in a cell. Yeah. That's a sort of lofty New Yorky Los Angeles feel. That is good. And then there's the sort of pure white space, which is very cool, as we know. Then we've got spaces that have a lot of green things in them, maybe green and copper and galvanized and things like that. Yeah. I think that the people at the moment are searching around for a new, a new direction. And maybe this COVID thing will produce some new trends that are to do with, you know, seat spacing cleanliness, comfort, putting people at ease, making, making people feel happy about being back in the public domain again. And those, those kind of, they're hard to predict how that's going to happen. As we were saying earlier, you know, the COVID thing is going to have an impact for sure. Yeah, yeah. How well, it's going to strike in terms of design and appearance and look and, look and feel uh, is another thing. I mean, in the, the design guidelines for... Transcope Academies, we've got three or four uh, look and feel trend examples that people can kind of mix and match from. Um, I don't think any of them are the right ones at all. I think, I think it's, a, it's more a combination of the three or four. And the project that we're working on now, which I, I can't really reveal, but a project we're working on now in Germany to create a salon, it's going to be very interesting to see which way that goes because it's been designed in COVID times. 
in a vibrant metropolitan city, international city, that has an incredible uh, design background. Um, yeah. Very interesting to see how that influences uh, the, the, the look and feel of the finished space. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, you, you touched on a minute ago, you said uh, more copper, uh, yeah. green, you know, wood. I mean, that's what I see as well as being a trend, that it's, it's softer. Um, yeah, it's softer. It's friendlier. It, it, has an, it has an environmental message about it, even if it isn't any more environmentally sound. It, it, it sort of is connecting more to the, to, you know, to the planet and to natural sort of surfaces. And interestingly, what you just said then about COVID, you know, I was reading somewhere that uh, that the virus can live. I mean, who knows whether this is right? So <laughs> don't quote me, uh, anybody listening to this. Uh, but they said that the the virus can live on certain surfaces a lot longer than others, and it quoted that it could live on stainless steel for up to two weeks, whereas on copper, it lives on copper for a very short space of time, minutes as opposed to hour, as opposed to days or weeks. And so, you know, just from that perspective the influence that, that um, you know, different fabrics have and, and the influence that COVID will have, you know, is it'll be interesting to see how it does sort of permeate through into all sorts of design, not just salon design, but all sorts of design, especially in, in public spaces. About 18 months ago, we did a lot of work on a brand that was to do with uh, environmental credentials, you know, the sustainable credentials. And one yeah. of the things, it was worked with an agency that specializes in uh, cataloging um, and, and, and uh, bringing together lots of recycled materials or new materials that are made out of things like mycelium and recycled packaging and stuff yeah. like that. And we, we brought them together in a presentation form so that we could say that these, these materials are the future that have, interestingly enough, some of them have antibacterial qualities built into them, as does copper as a material, which is why uh, the, the COVID bug doesn't live very long on it, because it is inherently antibacterial. And that's another issue that's coming through is, like, what are those materials that can be used in the space that, that have those qualities, and how will they impact on the appearance? Yeah, and the budget, like everything. Yeah. As soon as you said copper, it doesn't sound like it's going to be cheap. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's beautiful, but it doesn't sound like, I mean, you know, like little touches of copper are one thing. But if you start looking at, at um, I don't know, I suppose it depends on how big a surface area we're talking about, that it can sort of be, it can be one of those uh, materials that can blow out budgets pretty easily, I would imagine. Um, if you were a young salon owner listening to this and you were wanting to, you know, to, to take on a new location. If you were looking for a designer, how do you find a designer? Well, I think you've got to look for experience. I would say that, wouldn't I? I think you've got to look for experience. You've got to have some... I mean, it's a very specialised uh, field to be working in hair salons. And on the one hand, it's incredibly easy. You put a mirror on the wall, a, a, a sort of wheelie trolley in front of it, a seat in front of it, and a couple of lights over and you've got a space where you can cut people's hair. I mean, I'm traveling in India, seeing people at the roadside with a, with a wooden yeah. box and a mirror on the end of a piece of bamboo. Yeah. And that's the, the mobile hair salon of, of, of now. But 
It goes deeper than that, and obviously, and if you're going to have a, a, a salon that is going to function properly and it's not going to be expensive to run and it's going to be friendly to its clients and its hairdressers, then you, you need somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm. The problem I find with this sort of thing is that, that, and I completely get it, is that it's not cheap to employ people to do the design work for you when you think, oh, I could probably do it myself. Yeah, yeah. Or a contractor would help you or something. You know, it's it's a it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. Mm. Is there one area that you'd say to someone, for God's sake, do not scrimp on this? Is there one part of putting a salon design together that you would say, don't scrimp on this? This is the most important thing, you know, the floors or the you know, the lighting or, or or something. Is there one area that you sort of see again and again that people try and take shortcuts on and uh, it uh, has a, a significant, you know, negative impact? I'm, I'm not sure. I think I go back to the beginning of our conversation. And I would say that for me, the plan is really fundamental to the success of the space. Yeah. You know, you, I know it's kind of a, it's a kind of hysteric thing. It's not something you necessarily can pin them, but it is really so important to get the space sorted out in the right way and allocate the right things in the right places and so on. Sure, the lighting is incredibly important. I mean, you'd be much better off spending money on lighting than you would on flooring, for example. I mean, flooring is important too, but flooring doesn't necessarily impact the outcome of the hairdressing uh, experience. But if you can't see what you're doing, and if your clients look in the mirror and see dull hair that isn't reflecting light, then that's not working. It's not working. Yeah, I agree. I, I think until you've worked in a beautifully designed space, and I've been fortunate enough to do that, uh, design spaces that you've put together, until you really understand all those little you know, intricacies that go on in the background that you don't even necessarily know have gone on, um, you, you once you've had them, you don't want to do without them, put it that way. We, so, we spent so long with Annie Humphreys in Sassoon's designing the typical lighting installation for that because she quite rightly complained for years that the lighting wasn't yeah. right. The mirrors were the wrong colour, they were green, and the lighting was, was, was wrong. So we put up rigs and we tried things and we tried things until we got to a workable solution. And, and we pretty much stuck to that ever since in terms of technical lighting. Yeah, yeah. So you just said the mirrors were green. But what did you mean by that? I've never heard that before. So, again, it's all to do with lighting, and I totally get it. For anyone who doesn't know, Annie, you know, world famous, the mother of hair colour, so to speak. Um, yeah. And hair colour is so important in a salon. So um, just before we wrap up, what did you mean by that when you said the mirrors were reflecting green or something? We We – Put together a Sassoon salon in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, beautiful salon. And we, for it, we designed some brand new workstations, some freestanding workstations that had the mirrors were almost full width. And as we were building it, she came into the space and she said, these mirrors are all green. And I said, and she had an incredibly uh, acute color perception. Yeah. I said, what are you talking about, Annie? They're just mirrors. But you can actually see when you looked at the edge of the mirror, and the unusual thing about it was the edge of the mirror was concealed, but when you could look into the mirror and see the edge, you could see a yeah. green light. 
the other side of yeah. America. I, yeah, I'm familiar with that, yeah. She said, I can't work with these. It'll impact on the bronze. Yeah. Now, there is a mirror around that has no iron in it called the octoride mirror. But when you look in it, you get this perfectly clear reflection without wow. any lesson learned. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that. So you learned that from Annie. <laughs> at, at cost to somebody, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Um, Jonathan, we, we need to wrap up, but but where can people view some of your design work? Do you have a, uh, a website or is there somewhere you'd point them towards, you know, Instagram, whatever, where you'd say there's a collection there of my best design work? We have got in progress. Our website is a placeholder. Right. It's just at aoi.uk.com, www.aoi.uk.com. A whole range of images of our work. Our real website is being developed in the background of the moment. Okay, because I wondered why, because I checked that out. So I saw aoi.com on uh, and i'll put that link uh, in the show notes of this podcast because uh, uh yeah it was it, it did show some of your work but it wasn't a, a full website so now i understand what what's going on there okay so if you're listening to this podcast with jonathan lovett and have enjoyed it then please do me a favor take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your instagram stories and uh so final words jonathan um i just want to say thank you very much for uh, being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.